at blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Last week we talked about the blessing for the meek, how they will inherit the earth. And this week we have before us uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, a blessing specifically to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Um, what we are doing with the Beatitudes essentially is looking at the life the Christian is to live. Jesus lays down kingdom principles, a kingdom ethic, that those who operate within his kingdom, their life should look like these. So each week, one beatitude at a time. Last night, I was kind of, um, I was at the dinner table preparing, and uh, my oldest son, Tony, came home from work, delivering pizzas, hard day at work, and uh, got home, and it was coming down, it was about midnight, and he, he stepped into the dining room to say, hi, you know, how you doing, what are you up to? And I had the Bible open, you could see I was preparing. He said, oh, you're preparing for tomorrow, Which, what, what are you talking about tomorrow? You know, I was like, okay. Um, I, I read the verse to him, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, and he kind of paused for a minute, and he said, wow, it seems pretty obvious, how are you going to make a whole sermon about that verse? You know, like, how are you going to find stuff to say about that? It's pretty obvious, Dad. And I thought to myself, well, that is the challenge. But um, thanks, Tony. Maybe you can go to bed now, all right? <laughs> Feeling real encouraged after he left. So, so anyways, um, and, and it is um, seemingly a bit of a challenge. But what I've discovered, and hopefully what you've seen as week by week we've looked at each of these Beatitudes, is that really these are simple words, but they are deep and profound, and there's beauty in them. And so I'll just read verses 1 through 6 this morning, and then, then I'll pray for us. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And again, I'll remind you, time out real quick, that if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew chapter 5. If you have a smartphone, you can find it on there. The words will not be on the screen. There, if you need a, a word, a copy of God's word, there should be some in the back. I don't see any right now, but Wisdom is back there, and he'll grab one for you if, if you want one. So... Wisdom, don't leave. Stay right there. If you want a Bible, he's, you go find wisdom. He's right there. That's wisdom. Okay, yes. All right, so Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to worship here this morning, Lord. We thank you uh, for the men and women who have laid down their lives so that we would have this right, this privilege. Lord, I pray we would not take it for granted. We know that there are saints around this country who cannot do as we do this morning. Lord, we praise you um, for the opportunity we have to look at your word corporately together. We think of our brothers and sisters who lost their lives even this week um, because they proclaim you in an area where you are not adored. Lord, and I pray that this morning as we focus our attention on your words, Lord, that your spirit would fill this place. Lord, I pray that your spirit would convict us of your truth, would show each and every one of us clear and practical steps we can take to be obedient to your word this morning, Lord. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, the year was 1946, and as the story goes, a shepherd of the 
Tamara tribe left his flock of sheep and goats in pursuit of a stray sheep. Amid the crumbling limestone cliffs that lined the northwestern rim of the Dead Sea around the site of Qumran, he found a cave with a crevice of a deep, in the deep rocky hillside. Intrigued, he cast a stone into the dark interior, only to be startled by the sound of breaking pots. This sound would echo around the world, for he had stumbled on the greatest find of the century, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Upon entering the cave, the young Bedouin found a mysterious collection of large clay jars. The majority were empty, and upon examining the remaining few, he found that the jars, the jars that were intact with lids still on their place, on place of the jar. A closer look revealed the old scrolls, some wrapped in linen and blackened with age. He says, my hands shook as I started to unwrap one of them. I read a few sentences. It was written in beautiful biblical Hebrew. The language was like that of the Psalms, but the text was unknown to me. I looked and looked. And I suddenly had the feeling that I was privileged by destiny to gaze upon a Hebrew scroll, which had not been read for more than 2,000 years. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, by all means, was accidental. The young Bedouin shepherd set out to find a lost sheep. In its place, he stumbled across what would become the greatest discovery of the 20th century, and arguably the most significant biblical artifact of all time. The pursuit of one thing ultimately led to the discovery of another. From the beginning of time, man too has been seeking for something, has been pursuing something. Ecclesiastes 3.11 puts it like this. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. This is the plight of man to navigate God's beautiful but tantalizing world under the limitations of time. Yet in each of us, an echo of eternity, a taste for something more. Yet the satisfactions of this world prove to be too small to quench our thirst. Jeremiah puts it like this in chapter 2, verse 13, as he describes the faithlessness of the nation of Israel. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, they have forsaken God, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Some of us here this morning perhaps can relate to this longing for something more in life. You have tried perhaps to, to meet this longing with the pleasures of the world, and yet you are left unsatisfied, looking for more. The advice to Jesus, of Jesus this morning, is that in our pursuit, we would not forsake the living waters for broken cisterns that hold no water. And what we discover with, this, with his wonderful words is that the pursuit of righteousness is what ultimately leads to discovery 
of satisfaction and fulfillment. In looking for one thing, we are delighted to find another. The big idea that I hope, I pray that we leave here with this morning as we approach these few words of our Lord Jesus is that we would leave knowing the blessedness of living a life that longs for the righteousness of God. So, so to discover that blessedness in these verses, we're just going to ask a series of a couple of questions. The first question is going to be, what ultimately does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness. The format that I will take with this beatitude is the same format that I've taken with every other beatitude. And so hopefully you can anticipate, if you've been here from one week to the next, you can anticipate what the next questions, what the next few questions will be. But the first one we will try to answer is what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, to understand the meaning that Jesus has, I'm going to flip the order. And first we're going to focus on what ultimately is righteousness. What does it mean to be righteous. What is righteousness? Now, we could go throughout the Bible. We could survey a number of different texts to develop and, and figure out a meaning, a definition of righteousness, what it is. However, for the sake of time, we, we won't do that. And honestly, we don't need to do that because within just the Beatitudes, we can pull out and discern what, a meaning of, what the meaning of righteousness is within the context of this verse. See, there is a natural progression of the Beatitudes. One leads to the other. If you notice, this word righteousness actually appears three times in chapter 5. And within the Beatitudes, it appears twice. Here in this fourth Beatitude, but then also in the eighth, the final Beatitude. Blessed are those... Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake... For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The last beatitude says the same thing. And again, we would see it again further on in chapter 5. Twice here in the beatitudes it's mentioned. Understanding the structure of these beatitudes serves as the key to unlock what Jesus is saying. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it like this. This beatitude follows logically from the previous ones. It is a statement to which all the others lead. The logical conclusion to which they come. See, if you look at the Beatitudes, eight of them, there are really the last one is a restatement of the previous one. So as we're looking at it, we're, we're seeing there's eight Beatitudes. And there's really two groups. You can further divide that into two groups. The first three Beatitudes, blessed are, those who are, uh, blessed are the, the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the meek. The first three Beatitudes really gets at the, the proper attitude we should have towards ourselves. It is the recognition and the response to the sin that separates us from God. We see our sin, our rebellion, and that we are separated as a result from a holy God. As a result, we are broken and we mourn. Recognizing that we offer nothing, we bring nothing to the good and perfect God. The only proper posture is one of humility, one of meekness. This emptiness ultimately leads us to a longing to be fulfilled, to be filled. It is a desire to be free from sin, its power, its presence, and its penalty. This picture he paints in the first three Beatitudes is the picture of an empty life longing to be filled. That's the natural response of emptiness, a desire to no longer be empty. That's what we see in verse, in, in the fourth beatitude. 
Then the, the next three Beatitudes that follow, you could summarize them as the attitude we should have toward our Lord or a picture of what the full life looks like. It's the picture of one who is merciful, one who is pure in heart. It is the picture of one who is a peacemaker. He gives us a picture, he paints a portrait of what the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, they are filled now what their life should look like. And the result of that life, we learn, is persecution. That when we are faithful to what God has called us to, the world will reject us. The world will not know us. Persecution should be evident in the life of the believer. The desire for righteousness according to Jesus in Matthew 5 is a longing to be free from sin in its, all its forms, all of its manifestations. Free from the pollution, the corruption, from the judgment and the penalty. Righteousness according to Jesus here is to be made right with God and to be made like God. You could sum it up in those two phrases. To be made right with God and to be made like God. This longing to be free from sin is ultimately a longing to be more and more like Jesus himself. If you hold up each of these Beatitudes, you will see a picture of our Lord himself. The thing that makes Jesus' teaching, remember, his ministry could be summarized. He was powerful indeed. The, the things that he would do, the miracles he would make, the power he possessed, how he would calm the storms, walk in the water, heal the sick. He possessed a tremendous power that was evident throughout the way he interacted with those around him. But his power was also evident in his teaching. He was powerful indeed and word, word indeed. And one of the things that made his teaching so powerful, so authoritative, was that he actually lived what he taught. And so as we look at the description he gives us of how we should live, we could take each and every one of these Beatitudes, line Jesus up to it, and see how he fits the bill perfectly, completely perfectly. Poor in spirit, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. God himself came to earth and modeled for us what poverty of spirit ultimately looks like. Blessed are those who mourn. Jesus, when he saw the effects, when he saw sin played out in the world he made, his response was he wept. He mourned. He was meek. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus himself fulfills each and every one of these beatitudes. And our goal as we pursue righteousness is to be just like him. Now, sequence matters in the structure of the Beatitudes as a whole, but it also matters as we look at each and every one of these Beatitudes individually. Notice we are not to hunger and to thirst for blessedness or for happiness and thus receive righteousness. No, we hunger and we thirst for righteousness, and what we receive is the blessedness. See, this is the great tragedy. The inability to understand this is the great tragedy of our world. Though the world gives itself to the pursuit of happiness, it never seems to find it. According to this verse, our error is that our aim is misplaced. We are not to hunger and thirst for blessedness. See, eternity is built into the heart's of men. We are designed to hunger and thirst. We are designed to hunger and thirst. We are to long for something more. Something, that something, though, is not happiness. We are to hunger. We are to thirst for righteousness. 
If you pursue happiness, if that is your aim in life, you ultimately will not find it apart from the pursuit of righteousness. You know, I could, um, a couple years ago, I was playing basketball at the field house, and I was bending down to get a rebound, and somebody else was after the ball, and they dove in to get the rebound, and their shoulder clipped my knee. And as a result, my kneecap spun all the way around to the back of my knee. It was, I've had some painful experiences in my life, but that was probably, I would say maybe the second. The most painful was when they put it back in place, but that was probably <laughs> right up there. It was a very painful experience, okay? Tremendous amount of pain. It was not only maybe the most pain I have ever felt, but it was, it was also maybe like the, the world record for the shortest distance the ambulance had to drive. Like, because it was the field house, and you know, the, the hospital shares a parking lot, and they actually sent an ambulance to the field house, and drove, it, was, it was bizarre. Like, I could have gotten there a lot faster just with a couple of friends, you know, but anyways, tremendous amount of pain. And, and at that time, my, my focus, my desire was singular, eliminate the pain, no more pain. But if that was the concern of the doctor in the ER, it would be safe to say that he or she was a terrible doctor. If they shared my same concern, quick, just make the pain stop. That's it. If that was their concern, they would, they would not be a good doctor at all. Their focus must be on the source of my pain. They must get to the root of my pain to make it stop. That's the doctor's focus. Not merely to give me medicine to alleviate the pain. That would be a massive disservice. See, this is the folly of the world. An attempt to alleviate pain and be satisfied, we turn to the pleasures of the world. Relationships, careers, lifestyles, toys, hobbies. Many of these things are good. But the focus of our effort should be the cause of our pain, the root, the source of our unhappiness. They are not happy who hunger and thirst after happiness, but blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So if that's a picture of what it means, righteousness means, what does it mean then to hunger and to thirst after righteousness? As we have discussed before previously with each of these Beatitudes, Jesus structures them in a way as to shock the audience. It's the same thing here. This Beatitude is no exception. If we just stopped with righteousness, blessed are the righteous, there would be nothing shocking whatsoever. In fact, this is exactly what the Jews would have expected at the time. They would have expected a good rabbi to say, blessed are those who possess righteousness. Blessed are the righteous, but this is not what our Lord declares. His blessing is for those who long, for those who hunger, for those who thirst, for something they do not have, for righteousness. The very fact that the blessed life is marked by a hunger and a thirst for righteousness suggests that we don't have it. We do not have it. It is a lacking in righteousness. To hunger and thirst is to be fully aware of our desperate need. I think of Noel, our, I think, seventh month, seven month old, seventh month old now. And she's just now starting to move around, trying to crawl. She's found it more successful just to roll, though. So right now she just rolls from one point to the next. But she'll get there eventually. They all do, right? And 
When she was hungry, like maybe three, four months old, well, from the beginning till about three or four months old, when she was hungry, all she could do ultimately was to cry. She could just cry. And the longer she went without, the louder and louder, amen, her cry would get desperately. She had no ability to feed herself. She had no ability to do it whatsoever. She cried out in her desperation to be filled. John Darby, the great man who um, in the 19th century helped found the Plymouth Brethren denomination, says this, to be hungry is not enough. I must be really starving to know what is in God's heart toward me. When the prodigal son was hungry, he says, he went to feed on the husks. But when he was starving, he went to his father. That's exactly what the Lord Jesus is talking about. A hunger, a desperation that only God himself can satisfy. This is the type of hunger he is, he is talking about. Unlike the affection of Israel, which Hosea talked about in Hosea chapter 6, verse 4, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like the morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Our hunger, our thirst is not simply a passing, a fleeting feeling or emotion that comes and goes like the morning dew. It persists until it is satisfied. That's what it means to hunger and to thirst. So the next question we will ask is, if that's what it means, righteousness means, if that's what it means to hunger and to thirst, how are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness blessed? That's the next question that will help us understand the meaning, the significance of this beatitude. If you are here today and you know deeply the effects, the results of sin, maybe now more than ever, these words from our Lord should be a tremendous comfort, a tremendous joy. Those who hunger and thirst to be free from sin, Christ says in these words, those who hunger to be free from sin, one day you shall be satisfied. There will be a day when you will hunger, you will thirst, you will long no more. That's the blessing of these words. How in a moment, Noel, she can go from desperation, hunger, and thirst. And within two or three minutes, she is asleep, content. You can look at her and you can tell she doesn't miss a meal, okay? <laughs> she is fully content satisfied. That's the picture of us as we hunger and long and thirst. Christ, God, promises our satisfaction, our fulfillment. It says so in the Psalms, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Psalm 107, 9. Psalm 34, 10. Those who seek the Lord, they will lack no good thing. And of course, in Psalm 23, we learn that there will be a day when we shall not want. Our cup, the Bible says, will overflow. So three questions, or, or three different ways that we look at how he satisfies us, three different ways. First, his, his satisfaction is immediate. 
It is immediate. The man who desires, craves the righteousness of God to be made right with God, to be free from sin, the pollution, the corruption it causes, shall be satisfied at once. Immediately we are justified by Christ. His righteousness is imputed to us. It is ascribed, it is accredited, it is credited in our account so that when God looks at us, he does not see our sin, it does not mark us. He sees Christ and his perfection, his righteousness. Immediately we are forgiven. Immediately he gives us a new identity. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are made into a new man. Immediately we receive grace. We are no longer slaves to the law. We know the blessedness of this promise, of his satisfaction through salvation immediately, now. But another way that we know the blessedness is that it is ongoing. As we receive the Holy Spirit, he begins within us his great work of delivering us from the power and the pollution of sin. As we enlist in battle against the power, the prince of the power of the air, the wicked one, we put on his God's full armor so that we can become more than conquerors, even in our suffering. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 14 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. See, we can know the blessedness of this hungering and thirsting and longing for righteousness through our sanctification. It comes immediately at salvation, but we can also know and taste it through sanctification, becoming more and more like him. A third way we can know the blessedness, a way we can be satisfied is through eternity. The promise will be fulfilled perfectly and completely in eternity. There comes a day when those who in this world have hunger and thirst and righteousness shall be fully satisfied. Those who have stood firm in this life will one day stand before the king of the universe in his presence and shall be faultless, blameless, without spot, without stain. A new perfect man. Our humiliation will be transformed into glorification. So the way that we can know this satisfaction of pursuing righteousness is immediately now through salvation. It is perpetually going on through sanctification and one day it will be fully known through our glorification. So then the question is, Again, if we walk out of here this morning and all we do is have a better understanding of what Jesus is saying in our heads, it is no good to anyone, especially you. Our desire is that as we open God's word, that he would show us his truth. And in us, in us, there would be a desire, a pursuit to obey what he says. If we just leave here today and we have a great Bible study, maybe with our community group or perhaps on the ride home, we ask some questions and we talk, well, what did the Lord mean when he said this? And we have some knowledge, but it doesn't work its way out in our life and obedience. We have gained nothing. All we have done is fooled ourselves. So the question is, how do we respond to this truth? How do we respond to this blessing he promises for those who pursue, who long, hunger, thirst, after righteousness. The question I would help, I would ask you 
as you consider how should you respond, is maybe asking yourself this question. What does longing for righteousness look in my life? So just pull back and look at your life. What does it mean in my life as I go home to my neighborhood, as I go tomorrow or maybe Tuesday to work, as I interact with the relationships that God has put in my life? What does it mean to long for righteousness? To help you answer that question and evaluate, potentially consider steps you could take to be obedient to what Christ is asking us today, calling us to this morning, um, I will just point out something that's really obvious, but I think it's helpful. It was helpful for me. It's to look and consider what Jesus does not say with this beatitude. What he does not say is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Now, again, this might shock his initial audience. What he does not say is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for religion, for they shall be satisfied. He does not say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for religion. He says, righteousness. Now, if we were to look further down, Matthew chapter 7, towards the end of his service, or the end of the sermon, I say, I say this, I re-pivot sort of this question, because I think it helps us understand that oftentimes when we think about how to apply this, we think in religious terms. If you're like me, I think in sort of religious terms. But he gives us... Um, a, in verse 6, basically a warning that we see later in, verse, in chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, that we ought to take very seriously. In verses 22 and 23, he says this. On that day, speaking of judgment, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Then I shall declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These verses, I, I hope when he spoke them, terrified his audience. They should, too, terrify us as we read them. There should be a significant warning that as we hear these, our skin begins to cringe. Our hair perhaps will stand up. The fact that there are people who would call out to him, call him Lord. They, they called him Lord. They performed miracles in his name. They healed the sick. They cast out demons. And he turned them away at judgment. Why? Why would Jesus turn away people who were exercising his power on earth, who were calling on his name, who desired him? Why would he turn them away at judgment? Why? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Other translations would say you evil doers. Because they did not hunger and they did not thirst for righteousness. They thought they knew him. They thought he knew them. It's a terrifying truth. See, the reality is for us, even today, is you can be just as lost in the church as you can be in the world. If your understanding of longing and thirsting and hungering after righteousness is equivalent to an experience, a religious practice, 
You can be just as lost in the church. You can go from one ministry to the next, from one meeting to the next, from one conference to the next. You can crave and desire to sit under good teaching, perhaps experience wonderful worship. We have a phenomenal group here that led us in phenomenal worship this morning. And if we just crave from one week to the next to have a good experience, the danger is at judgment, Jesus might say to us, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He has not called us to a religion. He, our steps of obedience should not look like religious practices, boxes that we check. He's not called us to these experiences. We are to hunger, we are to thirst after righteousness. The tragedy of the church is that we run after one experience after the other while we neglect obedience. Caring about these experiences and caring nothing about righteousness in our marriage, in our home, caring nothing about righteousness in our neighborhood, in our city, or in our community. We will end up hearing these similar words, depart from me, for I never knew you. Truly deep satisfaction comes from the struggle to be like God, to be like Jesus. When you know you know Jesus, excuse me. You know Jesus when you struggle to be like Jesus in the hardest places of your life. It's easy to be like Jesus on a Sunday morning. It is. Maybe for some of us easier than others. This is an easy place to be like Jesus. It's easy to be like Jesus in a meeting with deacons and deaconesses or maybe even, well, maybe not Sunday school. Sometimes that could be hard, okay? I don't know. But, but it's easy to be like Jesus in these experiences. You know Jesus when you struggle to be like him in the hardest places in your life, your marriage, your neighbors, at work, with the people who you don't like or the people who don't like you. That is what it means to know Jesus. We cry out with Paul when he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him to his death. The picture that we have in Matthew 5, 6 of the one who longs, who thirsts and hungers for righteousness ultimately is a picture of the one who wants to be like Jesus. That's what it comes down to. I just want to close reading Isaiah chapter 55 verses 1 through 3. And this is, in the Old Testament, a very similar description of what we have in the Beatitudes. Listen to what Isaiah says. Chapter 55, verses 1 through 3. It's an amazing invitation. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, Eat. I don't know if you see the paradox there, but for the one who has no money, you have nothing. Come buy. How do you buy something when you have no money? You don't unless somebody credits something in your account. This is the glory of the gospel. It is seen all throughout the Beatitudes that we don't work our way to him. He 
has come to us. His invitation is come and drink. Come to the waters. Come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in the rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make you with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. The picture he gives us in Isaiah is the picture of a people who are invited to a God who knows apart from him we have nothing. We offer him nothing. And he promises us complete satisfaction. I think the challenge today maybe would be to identify are there things in your life that you are turning to for this deep satisfaction apart from him? Are you looking to just alleviate the pain rather than getting to the source? What we see in this beatitude in Jesus' teaching is that as we run after his righteousness, the glorious discovery of his blessedness is what he extends to us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. Um, Lord, we thank you for your power and for your might. We thank you that just even for the fact that you designed it like this from the beginning. Lord, that we are a people who are broken, that are bankrupt. Lord, but in our poverty, Lord, you came to earth took on our poverty so that we might be made rich with you in heaven. Lord, I pray for if there's anybody in this room who does not know you, who has not tasted and seen that you are good, Lord, I pray that you would create in them a longing, Lord, a desire to be more like you, that you would give us an accurate picture of who you are, how good, how awesome, how amazing you are, Lord, and you would create in us a hunger, a thirst, a longing that only you can satisfy. We ask these things in your name. Amen.